the new cases just keep on rising, whether it's in Melbourne or whether it's overseas. Coronavirus is taking no prisoners. And we look to the USA, which had 63,000 new cases on the 19th of July, ahead of the Washington, the Cincinnati tournament, which is in New York, and then the US Open at Flushing Meadows as well. Strong rumors overnight on Twitter that Washington may be cancelled. There's no confirmation as of yet, but a few journos have been tweeting it, and a few journos have been putting their feelers out, and we'll bring all of that and all the latest news, confirmed starters, and much more here on Breakpoint Podcast today. Val Ferbo here with you. We do have a stacked show, coronavirus aside. Luke Saville is going to join us, one of the uh, one of the doubles Grand Slam finalists at the Australian Open at the start of the year, part of Slug Nation with Max Purcell. It's an awesome chat. Can't wait for you to hear that. And one of the voices of cycling, Matt Keenan, is going to join us. You may think, why cycling? But Matt is a very, very avid tennis fan, and he calls tennis his mistress aside from cycling. So that's a great chat as well. We can't wait for you to hear that. But I'm sick of talking about the show. I want to hear this man's voice, and his name is Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you? I'm all right, Val. Um, just uh, holding up um, in another week of lockdown. What is it? I think we're about three weeks down or probably two, two and a half weeks. Yeah, um, I'm, so, I'm, uh, I'm yeah. three weeks down. Yeah, you're three weeks down. So, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just getting ahead of myself a bit. Yeah, um, yeah geez. I mean, um, <laughs> where do we even begin with uh, with uh, the latest uh, part of of the pandemic? But um, anyway, look, I'm excited to sort of talk a bit of a bit of tennis. There is a bit to talk about, although, uh, you know, one common theme is probably still going to dominate the show. But um, yeah, I reckon let's get stuck into it. Yeah, I think so. And look, uh, it's the, the worrying sign, as I said, off the top, uh, 63,591 cases in the USA on the 19th of July, which is the most recent stat that uh, I have in front of me. And uh, 412 confirmed, 1,000 confirmed cases in New York, but only 519 new cases uh, as of the 19th of July. And if we go down to Washington, uh, which is in this stat as well, 48,610 confirmed cases. I'm not sure. I think that might actually be the state. So I'll um, I'll look at what um, Washington, D.C.'s coronavirus cases have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a worry when you think about, uh, you know, New York's percentage is probably about one uh, percent of the New York of the um, American um, or the confirmed cases is one percent of the confirmed cases in the country for the day. But when you think about nine hundred people going there for a, for a bubble and being in a bubble for the U.S. Open for Cincinnati the week before, it, it's a little bit concerning, isn't it? Yeah. Um, look, I think I think when you have that many people in close proximity, um, social distancing as they might be. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's. I'm really struggling to see about how we can get to the end of the event and or, or both events really. If you want to package them both up, the City mm. Open and um, the US Open, that's that's if they go ahead. And it certainly seems like there's some some doubt over the City yeah. Open at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to see how at least one person won't um, contract the virus. And if if someone does, then you've got problems. But yeah. Um, yeah, it does. It does look like the City Open is in some doubt at the moment. Um, I think it was uh, Mike Dixon from yep. the UK um, who's who's tweeted that it's looking in some doubt, and the reason behind that um, is there are some some travel issues still to be ironed out. That um, uh, clearly are looking like they they might not be able to come, uh, overcome those. And um, 
uh, my guess is that it's it's uh, related to things like uh, you know players coming in from Europe um, and going back and forth and quarantining and you know bans on travel in, in each direction and logistical things like that. And um, I mean, obviously, it's it's a real shame if um, if it, if it doesn't go ahead because um, the field at the Washington Open is actually I'm sorry um, at um, Cincinnati is actually. Um, looking like it's going to be quite stacked. Um, well, no, you mean Washington. Stephano. Cincinnati's going to be in New York. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, was, yeah. I was right on the first yeah. instance. So, um, yeah, Stefanos Sitsipas, David uh, Goffin, and also Daniil Medvedev are all um, are all going to be there or are hoping to be there, um, which which means that clearly they'll be looking to compete in the US Open, in, in, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, look, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a concern, and I, I guess you know it's probably no 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 different to what we've been saying the whole time. Um, clearly, there are a lot of players, and we're going to hear from Luke Saville later. He's one of those players that um, has a lot to gain by heading over to the US and, and competing there. But um, we're, we've uh, we've said it the whole time that um, you know it just it, it is just so I think unlikely that this is going to be seamless. Um, yeah, it's and it's it's still it's still a concern. Yeah, I think so. And um, looking at the Washington, D.C. stats from the 19th of July, 11,339 confirmed cases up to then, but only 67 new cases. Um, so that's that's a that's a good sign in terms of... And I've spoken to Ben Rothenberg in the last few weeks and because um, he's been sort of on social media and, and discussing the Australian side of things with what's happening in Victoria as an, from an Australian Open point of view. And I messaged him and... Um, yeah, just said, yeah, it's it's not great over here. How's things going in DC? And he said things are, you know, things are okay. Um, we're definitely in one of the one of the lower ranked parts of America, which is good. But yeah, eleven thousand, um, three hundred and thirty nine cases and five hundred and seventy nine deaths in um in Washington DC. So the cases aren't as big as what they are in places like New York, Florida, California, or um or many other places. But it's still it's still a bit of a worry. But look, if if the cases stay at you know in double figures it's not as bad as what as what other places are but yeah it, it, it is a it is a real worry and I think Mike Dixon um yeah with his tweet um said it with like it seemed as though he's got pretty reputable sources that um that would know what's going on and um yeah it's it, it's, oh, it's it's worrying because what like if Washington gets cancelled what what, what what happens? What what do we do? Like where where do the where does the ATP go from there? And what what do what do the players do? How how do the organisers of the the calendar go about sort of reassuring everybody that it's a good idea to be going ahead with these tournaments? Because it doesn't. Yes, and and look, we've spoken to Chris O'Connell, and he said, you know, it's it. I want to go over, and Alan Perez wouldn't mind going over and and the players I think will go but the thing is Daria Gavrilova said during the week on Twitter I think players would kind of be relieved if they didn't have to make the decision and if it was cancelled the players wouldn't be relieved per se but they would be relieved in the sense that they wouldn't have to choose do I stay or do I go do I want the money or do I want to just keep my health and that's the conundrum that's the conundrum because I don't know what I would do. I really don't. I, I would probably be leaning towards staying home and just going, you know what, my ranking's safe. I'm just going to take the year off and, and train. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you've got that protected ranking, um, 
then, you know, it's something to, to fall back on. Uh, clearly, as we've already said, and Chris O'Connell, Val, you mentioned, um, he's got a lot to gain. Mm. Obviously, there are players that, that do have a lot to gain professionally, even though they do have that, that protection of the, the revised ranking. But, um, you know, certainly, I guess, uh, us two thinking um, uh, as fans, as, as commentators, if you like, um, from what we've heard that this virus can do to you. Um, and I mean, there's there's so many effects. I mean, it it, it um, you know we've seen cases of this thing sticking with people for a long, long time. Yeah. It doesn't matter how fit you are, how old you are. Um, it, it can really, really mess with your yep. your immune system. Yep. So it's a it is it is a real conundrum. I think I think Dasha put it pretty well actually. Um, in that um, you know if. Uh, if um, if the events were chalked off and the players didn't have to make that decision, it would it would be a bit of a, a relief. Um, but yeah, look, I'm sure a lot of them will take stock in what the people around them have to say, and um, I'm sure they'll go from there. Yeah, I think so. And and even like even this is a bit off off tennis topic, but Jennifer Aniston put on Instagram yesterday one of her best friends um, in hospital, and I'll show you the photo over Zoom here, and I'm not sure if you can see that, but it's pretty brutal oh with what coronavirus yeah. does to people and. He's got tubes in his nose, in his throat. He's on a drip. He's just he, he looks in such a horrible way. So this is what coronavirus does. We need to ensure, and we said it with the Adria too, we've said it with all the other tournaments, we need to ensure that public safety is paramount. Absolutely paramount, Joel. So the French Open wants to go ahead with crowds, but they've made masks mandatory. They've made everything mandatory. They can't go ahead with crowds. Crowds cannot... I repeat, they cannot go to Roland Garros. Feliciano Lopez, no. the tournament director in Madrid, is confident that they're going to have crowds in September. They can't. They just simply can't. Europe was one of the original epicenters of this thing. It just it doesn't seem right that crowds can go to events. And look, we love the crowds in sport. We've just seen it in footy over the weekend. Perth has 25,000 people. Adelaide does as well at the AFL games. And it's awesome. It's so good to have crowds back in sport. But... It just doesn't seem it doesn't seem right at a time like this. Like Perth and Adelaide are doing really well in terms of their coronavirus cases, but Europe is not. Nor is America, and nor is Victoria. So we need to just keep safe, wear a mask where you can, and it, it's it it is concerning. But look, tournaments the confirmed starters so far, as you did say, uh, in Washington is Tsitsipas, uh, Goffin, Medvedev. And then in the WTA event in Lexington, Serena Williams and Sloane Stephens have confirmed for the WTA that they'll be there. Um, but still some doubts from Svitolina. Um, you said that she's she appears set to snub the um, American swing. Kiki Burtons and Petra Kvitova both raised their concerns. And Simona Halep has um, already confirmed she's going to Palermo, so playing in Europe. But that's about it. So it's, it's very... It's very strange and it's very odd. But one question I'll ask you now with more recent developments and we're enlightened, I think, to more facts as the tours get closer to coming back before we do get to Luke Saville. Is, are these going to, are these Grand Slams, if they go ahead, going to have asterisks around them? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, isn't it, Val? Um, look, I think the answer almost has to be yes. I think... Uh, it has to be, not I, almost. It has to be. Yeah, look, I think, um, I think... On the ATP side of things, we're still we're still yet to see. I think who is 
going to go. Um, so obviously we know Roger Federer won't be there. That's mm-hmm. obvious. He's already ruled himself out for the yep. season. But guys like Djokovic, Nadal, um, you know, those kind of guys, Dominic Team. I think Dominic Team is keen to go. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously Medvedev, Sitsipas, Goffan, they're all they're looking to head to the US. So I think that's a pretty a pretty sizable chunk of the top guys that yep. will really add some some credibility to the event. But and Dimitrov's if, confirmed his intention to go to the US as well. Yeah, and, and Grigor as well. But if you look at the WTA side of things, and absolutely no knock against against the no, ladies, a lot of the top ladies uh, look are looking like they won't be there. Um, and even Ash Barty as well. We've heard we've heard a lot from Ash Barty in, in the in the press saying that she's got her reservations about going. Um, Simona Harlett might not be there. Uh, Svitolina. Yep. Um, Keith Burton's Petra Kvitova. I mean, they are some some big name ladies. So yep. if they don't go, um, really, I think you, you probably do have to put the asterisks on. Um, Roland Garros, maybe not. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of them will compete. Um, on, on the clay if that goes ahead. But then again, um, the Americans yeah, so. won't be able to go over, Joel. So it's going yeah, to be the other yeah. way around. And yeah. how many Americans are in the top 100 of the WTA? There's, I yeah, think there's about lot. 20 of them. So, and of course, the only female Grand Slam champion um, of the year is Sophia Kennan. So. There you go. So, yeah, and that's and that's the concern. And I think, well, I've seen, I've read uh, during the week that Djokovic has been seen training on hard court. Nadal hasn't yet been seen training on a hard court. So if that's any indication, Nadal's staying and Djokovic is going over to the US. Um, but look, I don't think they should count as Grand Slams. I, I think they should be played as US Opens, but th- there's big asterisks there. There's not... I just don't yeah, think... I think, think under the... Regardless of, regardless of whether they have asterisks or not, and I think it's going to have to be a case-by-case thing, um, you know, with with the two slams and the the men's and women's sides, but I think if they're going to get played, I mean, what else what else can we refer to them as? Um, because they are grand slams, um, and regardless of who who plays in them, I mean, what else are we supposed to really refer to them as? Um, it's it's a, a masters it, it two thousand. I know what you mean, but it is it is a really sort of tricky one. Well, we're going to change the uh, ATP Masters two thousand, first time in their history. <laughs> 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 for a WTA Extreme Premier event. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Look, I don't know. I think there's a big asterisk. Not all the players are going to be there. I highly doubt the Aussies will go. Um, I, I've got, But, like, if they're allowed, they probably will. But And the ones that we've spoken to have all indicated their intention to, to go over, it seems. So, and look, that's what we want. We want to see our guys going over there and playing well. But they're at least going to get to go to Europe. And that's the, I think, yeah. the, the salvation in this whole thing. But... Whether they're going to be allowed to go to America and then Europe is the big question. So I'm not sure whether that's going to be or what they're going yeah. to say about that. So that's the that's the big one there. I think are they going to be able to go to America or Europe or America to Europe from America? So yeah, it's it's really it's very very interesting. And Luke Saville gets into that a little bit more. So should we should we get into that chat, Joel? Yeah, um, I reckon the listeners will like what he uh, what he has to say, and there's a bit of uh, a bit of fun stuff at the end as well that'll uh, that'll lighten the mood. Definitely, let's get to it.
Joel, our first guest on today's show is considered one of the most prodigious talents coming out of the Tennis Australia ranks. He was a junior world number one, a dual Grand Slam champion at the 2011 Wimbledon Championships and the 2012 Australian Open. He's also a Grand Slam doubles finalist, running all the way to the final with Max Purcell at the start of the year at the Oz Open. His name is Luke Saville. Luke, thanks so much for joining us here on Breakpoint. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks a lot, fellas. Um, yeah, quite an introduction there. Um, no, it's a pleasure to be on your show um, in these uh, crazy times and, um, yeah, chat some tennis. Looking forward to it. Definitely. And first things first, I guess you mentioned the crazy times. How have you been going with the COVID pandemic? You, you're living in Melbourne now, so obviously we're all part of um, Victoria at the moment. So it's um <laughs> massive lockdown. But, yeah, how have you been uh, coping with it all? Um, yeah, it's it's been um, you know obviously difficult with the break of the tour, um, and as you know, there's quite a few restrictions that we've got to um, abide by here in Victoria. So um, you know, it's been um, one of those times, challenging times, where I've had to uh, manage my training. I guess um, you know, obviously, got to stay within the restrictions. Um, been especially probably a few months ago when we we're right in the middle of it, it was tough to. I guess, um, you know, keep ticking away, but I was managing to do um, a fair bit of work with my trainer still um, within the guidelines, obviously. And, you know, I feel like I've, I've been able to use um, the time wisely to um, to work on areas of my game that I haven't had the time or the opportunity to in the past. So um, it's been obviously in um, quite a grim time around the world. Um, it's obviously very unfortunate circumstances, but... I feel like it's um, in these times, I've definitely put a positive spin on it. Um, and it's been, I guess, quite refreshing to have uh, an extended amount of time, I guess, a few, you know, four months now, um, where I can really get stuck into my game and, um, and make some positive improvements um, we've felt. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what, what, what have you been working on in particular? Is there anything that you, you really wanted to really nail in on before the tour returned and um, something that you wanted to ensure that, you know, working your way, you're world number 351 in singles and number 38 in doubles. So what what, were you, what are you looking at to try and sort of move your way up both sets of rankings? Um, yeah, obviously the, the Australian Open was a great result and um, I want to continue to play doubles and get into as many bigger tournaments as possible. Um, obviously, um, you know, Max and I, we combine well and, um, and financially as well, playing those bigger tournaments is um, very beneficial, um, you know, to keep, uh, keep myself going um, and being able to bring um, whoever I want on the road as well. Um, but my sole focus is still singles. Yep. Um, and I feel like, um, you know, we sort of sat down at the start of this um, break and, sort of mapped out, um, I guess, areas of my game that we feel like are going to, um, you know, stand up at the next level. Um, I guess more specifically, um, obviously, the serve and forehand in the men's game are enormous. Um, uh, massive, you know, massive shots that need to be, um, you know, really big strengths, I guess. Um, so, you know, we, we did a fair bit of work on my serve, on my forehand, um, and, you know, not only getting them bigger, but, um, to a point where they're technically going to stand up at the next level um, and under pressure against the best players in the world. So we feel like um, we, we really put my whole game, uh, my body under the microscope, I guess, so to speak. And um, we feel like, uh, you know, we've definitely, uh, we're definitely shrinking a lot of um, a lot of those things. It's definitely, um, you know, we still want to keep improving and that's where we feel like our work um, every day. It's, um, you know, sort of 
another another door opens up, so to speak. Um, and it's very, um, I feel like we've done some pretty exciting work. Um, me and my trainer, Mark McGrath, um, you know, if, uh, even through some of the tougher times, I was still managing to see him um, a few times a week. So fairly happy how I've sort of invested in my tennis, in my game. Um, and, you know, I guess that's what you're... You've got to trust the process and trust the work that you're doing is going to, um, you know, you're going to get that return in the long run, I guess. Well, just to touch on uh, your, your doubles career again, I'm really fascinated by how doubles uh, partnerships and, and combinations come about. Obviously, you're uh, with Max Purcell at the moment, Slug Nation, as it's been, uh, as it's been dubbed, and um, had a really great run at the Australian Open. It was really great fun to watch as well. But can you sort of talk us through how that partnership um, came about because, as I said, it has been great to watch. Yeah, Max and I, we probably met um, you know, three or four years ago now. Um, he's four years younger than me, so quite an interesting um, dynamic, I guess. Um, you know, I feel like I'm uh, you know, kind of a, more of an um, older figure and, and almost mentor for him, but he's obviously um, going great. He's playing some great singles as well. And, um, yeah, it really probably started... You know, leading into the Aussie summer, I think it was 2018, um, you know, we were pretty good mates this time, but we sort of thought, you know, we'll, we'll team up and, um, you know, try and have a run at the Aussie. Um, and I guess leading into the Australian Open, that's what a lot of the Australian guys do. They try and find someone to team up with in order to get a wild card into the, into the Australian Open. That's kind of how it, how it works a little bit. And um, we won... We won our first challenger in Bangalore, in India, um, at the end of um, at the end of 2018, um, and no, end of 2017, and um, you know, and we took a lot of confidence from that as well. Um, and we kind of we started to do quite well on the challenger tour. Uh, we came into the Aussie Open um, and we won a round, so we kind of felt like that was quite a big result. And then we just sort of started gelling on and off the court, um, and we felt like. We enjoyed traveling with each other, and then, you know, more importantly, we were sort of posting some good results in the doubles court. And um, you know, he's based in Sydney now, I'm in Melbourne, but we, we chat most days. Um, and he's been using this time um, quite wisely as well to improve his game. Um, and it's just the good thing, you know, when you're teaming up with, with someone, um, you, you know, there's no there's no pressure to um, you know to show the other one up. I guess um, you know we have a great relationship, and we're just going out there and most importantly, having a lot of fun. And that's kind of how the Aussie Open went at the start of this year. We went out there, we ripped in every match, brought a really high energy. Um, and, um, you know, we really used the crowd to our advantage and, um, you know, found ourselves in a final. So um, it, it was a really, um, really exciting run. Yeah, absolutely. It encapsulated the whole nation, really. I remember the um, the, the media fest that was behind the slugs and and how good it all was. And um, unfortunately, didn't get the chocolates, but it was um, it was one of the most unbelievable runs I've ever seen at a slam. But um, talking about slams, your doubles ranking is world number thirty eight. The U.S. Open is obviously half the doubles draw um, this year. Are you planning to go over there with your doubles ranking and and go play in the U.S. with um, with Max or? Will you try and focus on something else? Yeah, we'll definitely try and go over and play. Um, we'll be borderline Cincinnati, which is the week before, and obviously that's going to be in New York City as well. Um, so we're planning on going there and hubbing um, and being there. Um, I think the Washington, D.C. tournament, um, we'll try and go and play that yeah. if it's on. I'm hearing some um, fairly 
dicey reports if they will go ahead or not, DC. Um, just the logistics and sort of the money to put on that. Uh, they're not. I think they're not too sure, um, but um, can't really confirm there. So I think, you know, these decisions will be made in the next couple of weeks about the US Open as well. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, there's so much uncertainty yeah. surrounding the tour right now, unfortunately. Um, Europe is looking fairly confident it will go ahead. So even if the US Open doesn't go ahead, I think um, we'll be starting up in Europe. So, you know, I think it's... Um, it's going to be interesting for me when we first come back because the challenges will be so strong. So I'm not sure if I'll get runs in singles there. So I might, um, I might have to sort of play, um, I guess more doubles, um, without sort of having a bit of a choice. Um, so, you know, I'll just, you know, like I mentioned before, I'll try and manage, um, my singles and doubles as best as I can. Um, but you know, I guess the, the big goal is, you know, I'm 26. I feel like I still have some singles there um, to be played. and um, But in the same boat, you know, I'm, I'm top 40 in doubles. That's, um, you know, we've got quite a good opportunity to to, to push forward and, um, you know, hopefully make a few more um, big runs at these tournaments. But we're definitely not taking it for granted the result we had at the start of the year. That was um, that was pretty huge. And we had, a, you know, we needed a wild card into that. And we really snuck through a few matches. So, um, you know, I guess we were... We're a little bit lucky, but sometimes that's what doubles is a little bit. Just on the communication side of things, uh, Luke, we've heard from uh, a few of the men, the Aussie men, um, uh, around uh, this sort of communication side of things. Obviously, uh, we had Andrew Harris on the show about a month ago, and he had quite a lot to say about it, how he's been sort of pretty uh, discontent about what's um, what's been said. And then uh, last week when we chatted to Chris O'Connell, he actually said that he, he hadn't really been privy to any conversations and hadn't been on, on any Zoom calls or anything like that. But um, how about yourself? Have you sort of uh, been on um, you know, any of those discussions and uh, are you happy with um, what's been communicated to the players by the ATP, the OSTA, et cetera? Yeah, they ran one... Um they ran one probably a month ago now um, for, you know, sort of three, 400 players. I wasn't on that. And they ran one, when was that, sort of the start of last week. Um, and it's a little bit disappointing because, yeah, they're in the middle of the night here in Australia. So I didn't sit in on any of the sort of like 1 a.m. So obviously I'm keen to sort of hear what's going on, but not sort of – I don't want to be up all hours of the night as well. So I got a few updates from some of the um, – you know, the tour managers and supervisors and um, and just some of the other players as well. Um, and Tennis Australia, they've been running one um, Zoom call a week as well, Craig Tiley, just sort of um, with more of an international domestic and then sort of like a general update as well. So, um, you know, probably feel like, yeah, we'd like to be in the loop a little bit more with the ATP and the USTA, but I'm sort of cutting them some slack as well because, Times are so difficult, and I think there's just there's quite a few parties in there, and you know they're all sort of um, maybe on different pages. So it's just quite a difficult and uncertain situation right now. Um, I'd like to know more because I could be I could be travelling in sort of four weeks, um, but I don't really know where I'm going. So um, really kind of tough times, and for an international sport that. You know, we need to be traveling to these tournaments and some borders are closed, quarantine. Um, you know, Europe have still banned travel from the States to Europe right now. So uh, with the US Open going ahead and then players having to get to Madrid three days later, but travel's been banned. So it's kind of, that to me is quite interesting. I don't know how they're going to yeah. 
and it's not just banned. It's not banned for the tennis players. It's banned for everyone. So that's obviously an enormous um, roadblock, if you want. Um, and if they don't sort that out, I believe they might just start in Europe. But that's kind of just a guess. I, I really don't know. Is that where, because of all these interruptions and because of all these travel bans, is that where the updated ranking system for what they've put in for 2020 is going to help? Or do you feel as though they should have just kept it as normal? Uh, well, yeah, if they can't get many tournaments played for the rest of this year, I believe they have to um, extend it out. Because, for example, Max and I, if we can't play many tournaments for the remainder of this year, and then they take out Australian Open points off us, which is what's happening right now. I don't think that's very fair, obviously, because we would have had, you know, a handful of tournaments to use that ranking and then bang, those points are off and we're sort of back to challenges. We're, at, we're outside of the Grand Slam Cup. Um, so, you know, with that ranking, um, you, you can't lose points the rest of this year, but it's a clean slate from January. Um, that personally has been very poor for me. Um, so, you know, I'd like them to, you know, reconsider, obviously, but there's um, there's a lot of players with individual um, situations and they try they can't obviously cater for everyone, but they're going to try and do their best. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I've spoken to a few play, um, supervisors and tour managers and basically if, uh, you know, if a lot of um, events can't get played for the remainder of this year, they'll definitely reassess the rankings. Um and potentially go to a 24-month um, ranking system rather than a 22-month because the 22-month was from March 2019 to 2020 December. So um, if they can stretch that out to 2021 um, March, that will help our um, help our situation quite a lot. But yeah, even with the rankings, I think that is an ongoing situation they're constantly monitoring and with every sort of cancellation or update from the tournaments um, for the remainder of the year, I think they're going to, you know, potentially tweak that, but same sort of thing. That's a bit of a guess. Yeah. There's so, there's so much of it. That's a bit of a guess at the moment. And I, I guess the monetary situation out of this whole, out of this whole pandemic has been, has been under the microscope. And um, I, I think a lot of it has been unearthed about how difficult the pay gap is or how inequitable it is between the two, the top and the bottom ranked players. And, um, Wimbledon's uh, surplus package last week or two weeks ago coming out saying that they were going to pay everybody that would have been in the main draw. We had Chris O'Connell last week and his smile was from ear to ear about what they were doing. Um, how, how did that make you feel as a, as a player that they were going to go through all that effort and, and pay that money to, to the players that would have been participating? Um, yeah, I mean, personally, it helps a fair bit. Um, you know, for, on the double side of things, um, I think that's... That's kind of why Wimbledon are where they are. They just keep on raising the bar. Um, I mean, that's that's an amazing gesture towards the players, to be honest, that they did not have to do that in these times. But I guess it just shows their respect to all the players and, um, you know, and, and not sort of pumping the players' tyres. But they realise, you know, the players, I guess, you know, with no players, there's no tournament. Um, but even still, if they don't, if they don't go and pay out everyone, um, and just sort of keep everything for them. Obviously, that's not going to turn players away for next year. Uh, it's it's obviously Wimbledon, but again, it just raises the bar um, for Wimbledon. Um, they always go, um, you know, sort of beyond uh, what they required, um, and that payout. I mean, that really helps 
you know, the, the doubles guys like myself and even some of the, you know, who would have been in the qualifying as well. So, um, you know, a few people are sort of saying, you know, like, you know, why are they paying out? You know, no players played or, or won anything. Um, and I guess they have a point, but just to show their support to the players um, and, you know, I guess, you know, hopefully a lot of the players can put that straight back into their tennis and um, into their travel. And, um, you know, I know personally it takes a lot of pressure off me um, traveling and, um, I can put that back into my tennis, which I'm pretty thrilled about. Coming up to the end of July, which of course means that the restart is uh, pushing, uh, closer. And of course, for any listeners that uh, aren't aware, of course, Luke uh, is uh, in one of, uh, or probably Australian tennis's power couple. Of course, yourself and uh, Atari Gavrilova. Um, I mean, how how much has it helped? I guess not only in a tennis sense, but also in a personal sense to have have her there, and um, I, I guess keep fit, keep mentally fit, ready for ready for the restart. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it helps. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been. You know, it's been a time where we can obviously spend a bit more time together. It's it's been the longest period of time we've spent um, together for sure, easily. Um, and just to be here in Melbourne, um, you know, a bit. You know, obviously some quiet time and whatnot, and being able to reflect. But we're we're both very keen to to get playing. She's battled some um, injury concerns and niggles um, herself, so she's sort of slowly getting over those and, and she's really ready and raring to play as well. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, we both know what we're dealing with. Um, and I think that helps when we're traveling as well. Um, you know, I guess if, you know, if I was in a relationship with someone that sort of stayed in Melbourne all year round or whatever, they, you know, they might, you know, require me to come back, um, more often and they, you know, they might not understand the, the travel struggles and whatnot that tennis players have to deal with. So, um, you know, we both, um, I guess, know the deal, so to speak. And, um, you know, it requires a lot of travel. Um, you know, sometimes we're not seeing each other for a few weeks in a row. So it's, uh, you know, it's definitely an interesting one. But we, you know, we both, you know, have the same career. We both have um, big ambitions. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's quite nice to go through together for sure. Yeah, definitely would be. And um, I'd be remiss to ask you, and I've seen on your Twitter, we won't ask you about the game on the weekend, but you're a big um, big AFL fan, and I know you go for the Blues, so let's not bring that up. But um, uh, what uh, now, I've, I've seen on Twitter you've had a few thoughts about the, the players in the uh, being in the hub and, and everything like that and how they've been how they've been complaining. And it, it's what do you make of that as someone that travels for so long during the year and has to has to just for like it's just part of the job to forego seeing family friends what did you make of their comments saying that um you know they didn't really want to go up and, and be there for a few weeks yeah i mean i think if you hop on my twitter um you can see a few of my thoughts but um yeah you know i think with afl players you know i think the running joke i guess for, for tennis players we have to travel um you know, i guess 10 months of the year got to be away from family um you know, got to travel all around the world and and AFL players, they can sort of stay at home and play within Australia, which, you know, to tennis players, that's almost a dream for us, you know, to sort of yeah. stay home and, um, you know, feel like the clubs give them a lot and whatnot. And so I sort of stated that a little bit. And then, um, but in the same breath as well, I completely understand that, um, you know, a lot of these players have young families mm-hmm. and spending weeks away, um, you know, going up to Queensland or Perth and, not being able to see their, their young families, you know, some have, you know, newborns for, you know, weeks, maybe months. That's very difficult as well. I just, um, I think that, uh, you know, potentially uh, the footy players could, you know, 
look at the tennis player situation a little bit and you know sometimes realize you know they've got it reasonably good but as well um you know i've seen a few in their defense um you know signing up to play tennis and you know playing professionally um we knew what we're gonna you know what we were signing up for i guess and um it requires a lot of travel and personally i i enjoy the travel um, i enjoy traveling around the world and competing and whatnot um and so, yeah, I, I made a few comments like that. But then again, I'm a diehard um, AFL football fan. And, um, you know, even when I'm all around the world, I get up all hours of the night to support my team, support the Blues. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, I think uh, I made a few comments like that. But um, I got a lot of respect for the AFL players as well. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. I think it's it's uh, kind of a double-edged sword, I guess, with, um you know, tennis players um, and I, I think the, the comments that were made by Shay Mumford's wife at the start of the year were a little bit ignorant. But other than that, I've um, I've kind of been on the fence. So, um, yeah, definitely you're 100% right. But um, we've got a little bit of fun now. This is um, Joel's idea. It's called Rapid Fire. You'll get the gist of it very, very quickly. It's just a one-word answer to a few questions. And um, I'll let Joel fire away because he's come up with a few here. And um, hopefully... Hopefully they're not. Um, there's a couple that he's uh, asked that have been um, a little bit uh, that have fallen flat. So hopefully these ones are okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no right or wrong answers here, Luke. And um, I mean they can be more than one word answers. It's completely up to you. But um, as Val said, you will get the gist of it very quickly. So first one: tacos or souvlakis? Tacos. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. No, no, I respect yeah. that. Family Guy or The Simpsons? Uh, family Guy. Yes. Good answer. Uh, yeah, Val liked that one. Now, there's some good potential with this one. Which Aussie tennis player thinks he or she is funny but really isn't? Oh, Dasha? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're tagging her in the tweet. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Which artist are you frothing right now on Spotify? Um, oh, that's on the spot. Um, oh, can I quickly check it? Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, I'll quickly check. Probably, um, oh, that, the Lady Gaga, Grando, Rain On Me. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Good choice. Now, of course, uh, you are a South Australia boy originally, so what's the best thing about South Australia? Oh, probably... Probably the beaches. Nice. Oh yeah. Yep. Any uh, any recommendations? Um, oh, even just my good mate lives in Brighton. All along there is quite good. Down at Kangaroo Island. Nice. Yeah. Something about Brighton and good beaches. I don't know what it is. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah, UK, Victoria, South Australia. Yeah. What's true. the best place you've travelled to for tennis? Um. Oh, it's on the spot. Um. <laughs> Probably the States, um, and we're in the States. Let's just go with Newport, Rhode Island for the, oh, um, nice. the 250. I like it around there. Yeah, very nice. What's and the worst place you've travelled to for tennis? Worst place um, probably has to be, uh, let's go with India. India, right. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that would be yeah. uh, an interesting experience. We've had a few uh, nominations. We've had a few nominations for China, Uzbekistan, South America, and yeah, in, India. That's the first nomination I think we've had. So, 
Um, um, I think I think second we had um we had Daniela Hunter say India. Yes, she did. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but she timed it in, in a good way, saying that it was an eye-opening experience. Yeah, Very yeah, it is. Yeah, they do. They they try really hard. Just uh, you know, seeing some of the spots outside of the hotels and stuff, you you mm. definitely feel very fortunate where you're from. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of the some of the scenes are um pretty sad. Yeah. Now, finally. If you weren't a tennis player and you could do anything else instead, what would you like to do? <laughs> um, yeah, I'll probably like this one. Probably a footy player. Nice. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Very nice. Running out with the Blues, I'm sure. Oh, jeez, that one. That one still hurts from yesterday, boys. Don't worry. I'm a I'm a I'm a Tigers fan, so mate, don't worry. We've uh, before 2017, I'd seen it all. So uh, we, we had an NRL uh, player kick a goal after the siren against us. So, um, <laughs> so, so don't worry. It's um, it's not as bad. It's not as bad. Yeah, um, but Luke, yeah. anyways, mate, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. You're an absolute superstar. And fingers crossed um, we can see Slug Nation win a Grand Slam very, very soon. And we <laughs> can see yourself in the top 100 in singles. It'll be awesome. And um, fingers crossed. And best of luck to you and Dasha. Thanks a lot, fellas. Thanks for having me on. Um, I think the show's pretty good. So like what you're doing. Thanks for that. Luke Savile there joining us and a little bit of a glowing indictment for us there. A bit of an ego boost for me and you, Joel. Um, that. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, he, he was great. And that little uh, little jab towards Dasher at the end there was absolutely fantastic. We tried to steer clear of the um, the Carlton chat as well after what happened on Sunday with uh, Robbie Gray King, your goal after the siren to beat them. But um Really, really interesting stuff there, and um, yeah, I think that the fact that he's he's pretty keen to go over to the US is, um, I think, from what we were saying at the start of the show, is uh, is really good. And ho- look, hopefully, hopefully the players can get there. Hopefully, there's a there's a way that they can do it and and make the most of their opportunity here. But I don't know. I'm just I'm concerned for all their well beings, and that and I think that's that's the problem. So. I don't know. It's it's such a. I just can't. Twenty twenty can just get in the bin, can't it, Joel? <laughs> yeah, no, it absolutely can. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, obviously, we've heard from a lot of um, a lot of players that are predominantly, uh, I guess, on the singles tour. Uh, and that's not to say that Luke's not. He obviously was talking about how he's put a lot of work into his singles yep. game. But of course, him and Max Purcell um, had a really good run at the Australian Open. Um, and they're a doubles team that have um, a lot to gain by going to the US Open as well. So it was really interesting to hear from uh, from that side of the coin um, as well. But um, yeah, look, I mean, Luke's been around the track for for a long time. He's obviously um, played a lot of junior tennis as well. He um, he, he won a lot of junior titles. Um, so look, he um, you know he's a guy that will will know exactly what's what's going on. And um, you know, I'm pretty confident that um, that he will uh, will make the, the right decision, um, what's best for him and, and also what's best for his partner as well. I think so. And um, yeah, I think it, it would probably, and as we said, it would definitely help having Daria having going through the same situations as him, because I think yeah. if you were dating someone that wasn't a tennis player, they wouldn't understand half of this unless they're in the media. And then they would kind of, kind of have a gauge on what they were going through, but they're still not in that position. So it's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder to empathise, I guess, with their decision and what they want to do. So, um, 
yeah, thank God they've got each other. And um, they, as you said, they are Australian tennis's uh, power couple, you'd assume. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely fantastic, Luke Saville. And um, just just back to the AFL chat, I do want to give um, just a quick RIP to Shane Tuck, a Richmond player who did pass away yesterday. Um, I was absolutely shattered by the news. And as you've seen, Joel, I've got my Richmond stuff back behind me um, in my room here. So, um, yeah, no, I just wanted to give a quick well wish to his family as well, because that was rocking news for the AFL community. So to the Tuck family, um, all condolences. But should we get to uh, Matthew Keenan and chat a little bit of cycling slash tennis, Joel? Yeah, it's a bit out of the square, but um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, this this was really interesting. I, I'm a bit of a cycling nuffy, but um, it was really nice as well. Um, turns out Matt's actually uh, relatively close to me in a tennis sense. Yes, he is, definitely, and we'll find out where. Joel, our second guest is someone that I'm really, really excited to speak to, and he is the voice of cycling. When you listen to the Tour de France in uh, in Australia, you hear, uh, you think of the voices like Mike Tomolaris, Paul Sherwin, Phil Liggett, and this man, Matthew Keenan. He's one of the best cycling commentators in the world, and he's a massive, massive tennis fan as well. So we thought we'd get him in to talk about both sports, with the Tour de France scheduled to be on at the moment. Unfortunately, because of COVID, it's not. So we get the pleasure of speaking to Matt. Matt, thank you very much for, for joining us. How are you going? Oh, very good. Actually, one of the reasons I got so passionate about cycling as a kid was that my younger brother used to always beat me at tennis. So that was motivation to get away from tennis because you can't have a younger brother <laughs> no. beating you all the time. No, not at all. And um, I'm lucky I'm an only child, so I don't have to worry about that. So I um, can <laughs> stay with all the sports that I've enjoyed since being a kid. But um, uh, first things first, Matt, how are you going with uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic? You're Melbourne man, so um, it's obviously very difficult for all of us at the moment with lockdown, but how have you handled it all and um, what have you been up to? It's my first Melbourne winter since 2006, so it's yeah. been a real shock to the system. So it's been 14 years on the road of throughout July, I'd be at the Tour de France. Uh, throughout June, I'd often be in France covering a lead-up event, the Criteria Dauphiné. Yeah. I was in France in March when the lockdown all started. France was starting to go into lockdown. Then I arrived in Australia 24 hours before that self-isolation wow. started. So if I had been on a flight one day earlier, I would have gotten home and not needed to self-isolate. As it was, I got home and I had to self-isolate. And ever since then, I've just had to embrace it like everybody else and make the most of it. I've got two young kids. I've got an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. So we're back in the second round of doing homeschooling. And it's a challenge, the homeschooling, but it's also really rewarding for me to get to spend that time with my family. I've worked it out that I spend about six months of the year in a hotel bed. So my wife thinks it's hilarious with each of our anniversaries, you know, married for 10, together for five, that sort of gag <laughs> she likes to roll out. So this has been a really good period for me in terms of spending time with the kids, but I've missed the racing, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And um, speaking of the racing, the Latap Classic has been on uh, SBS over the last few um, the few weeks, where you, which is the company you work for and commentate so brilliant for. And um, the coverage of the tour is amazing. And uh, I think reliving Kidal Evans' phenomenal win in 2011 is something that uh, I think that's what made me really fall in love with the tour and watching the magical uh, ride that that was. And um, and just the stories in that whole tour. Thomas Voikler's run in the yellow. Um, Andy Schleck's run up the Galibier, the Alp d'Huez and how Cadell just managed to keep fending off the Schleck brothers and then the time trial. It just had so much in that tour and 
what's your what's your favorite memory from that tour? I know we're talking a lot about cycling. We will get to tennis, but what, what's your favorite memory and most magical memory of that tour? It's hard to pin it down to one moment, but my favorite moment is when Cadell is on the podium with the yellow jersey in Grenoble, which is after the individual yeah. time trial. Most people remember that moment in Paris where Tina Arena steals the show in many yeah. respects, singing the national anthem. But Cadell knew he'd had it won 24 hours before, so the emotion isn't so raw there. But when you see him on the podium in Grenoble after he's won the time trial, he's got the yellow jersey, and he knows he's going to wear it the next day, Cadell's pretty good at keeping the guard up. Yeah. He never wanted to be famous he just wanted to win bike races the guard comes down and you see the emotion overflow and i've been really lucky in my relationship with Kiddell just by pure chance of geography we've grown up in the same area and i first met Kiddell at a bike shop in eltham in 1993 so i've watched his whole career and to see him win the tour de france firstly made me feel a lot better about getting beaten regularly by him at club races as a kid but to see him go on and win the biggest bike race in the world and to know that Australians had been going to that race since 1914 and no Aussie had been able to win it before, it's right up there with any of the great moments in Australian sport. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned uh, Alphamat. That's actually sort of relatively close to me in the sort of the northeastern suburbs of, uh, of, of Melbourne and um, I guess we're pretty lucky as well, I think, in Australia to have... Uh, a pretty good sort of collection of, of athletes that we can be proud of, regardless of whether it's tennis or cycling or I don't know, soccer or AFL, whatever it is. Um, I think we've got a lot to be proud of. So can you sort of, um, I guess, talk to us a little bit more about, about Cadell and, and what makes him special? Uh, I worked it out pretty quickly that he was special. So I'm two years older than Cadell. And I can remember when I was 17 and he was 15. So you've got a big physiological advantage being two years more mature at that age. And we were riding up to King Lake. And King Lake is an eight-kilometre hill. And, and I was all in. Heart rate monitor on. And I'm like 186 beats per minute. I'm in the red zone. And everybody else has been left behind. And Cadell's not super talkative. But he's riding next to me, breathing out of his nostrils, chatting away, as if to say, don't take it easy on my behalf. And then the next day, we're in the bike shop in, in Eltham. Eltham Cycle Works, I think it was called. And I had a bet with a mate of mine, Steve Tui. $5, Kiddell wins a mountain bike world title one day or wins a world title one day. And he never won a mountain bike world title. He got second, he got third. And then in 2009, he won the road race world title in Mendrisio. And I was lucky enough to be there and commentate it with Phil Liggett. And I got to see Kiddell after the podium presentation. So what's that 16 years on from that $5 bet? And Kiddell says to me, Tui owes you five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's un that is unbelievable. What uh, he just seems like that sort of personable guy for away from the spotlight, and no, nah, it's it's still unbelievable, and I still I still love it to this day. And just one more quick question before we do get to tennis: your favorite Tour de France climb? There's so many. There's the the Galibier, Mont Ventoux, the iconic Alpe d'Huez. What's what's your favorite one to watch, and what what brings the most drama? Alpe d'Huez, not because of the road, not because of the hill because of the fans yeah it is a party it is the woodstock of cycling yeah if you say you remember the day that you were at Alpe d'Huez you probably weren't there because nobody actually remembers they turned it into a party and I've got 
I've actually got some really fond memories of going there. Myself and this guy, Steve Tui, we first went there in 1995 when I was racing in Europe. And we went to watch the Tour de France and I saw Marco Pantani win on Alpe d'Huez. And then I can remember the first time driving up Alpe d'Huez, the night before a stage of the Tour de France when I was commentating. And we got to what was known as Dutch Corner and the Dutch had closed in the road. We were in a, an official tour vehicle from the race organisers and they stopped the car. If we had kept driving, there were going to be fatalities. So we stopped the car and they start shaking the car and they're chanting, Dennis Burkamp, Dennis Burkamp. <laughs> and they were celebrating, I don't know what it was, Dennis Burkamp's football career, been retired for about five years by that stage, had nothing to do with the bike race, but it was on Alpe d'Huez at about midnight. That's the beauty of Alpe d'Huez. It's magnificent. Oh, I'd love to. That's it's on the bucket list. I'm, I'm absolutely desperate to go. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on to the tennis chat now. And um, you, you've told me that um, you know cycling is your first love, but tennis is a very, very close second. And um, what what was it about tennis that that originally encapsulated you with the sport? And what was it that that made you love that made you love just two people hitting around a fuzzy yellow ball? It's family sport, essentially. Yeah. My wife likes to call tennis my sporting mistress. She <laughs> says, I'm married to cycling, but tennis is my, is my affair on the side. Uh, it is a family sport. I'm one of seven kids, and oh, wow. everybody in my family has played tennis. And my mum played you know, classic Tuesday ladies. And every day, every Tuesday night when Dad got home from work, he'd say, how'd you go today? Gone. Referring to Yvonne Goulagon. And... <laughs> I can always remember those conversations. And mum was a better player than dad. If mum and dad played singles against each other, mum would win. Wow. And the big rivalry in our family, you had Carlton Collingwood and you had Chris Evert versus Martina Navratilova. But so as a kid growing up, there was great equality in terms of sport in our family because, you know, dad would catch a football with his nose and mum actually had hand-eye coordination and she could play a decent game of tennis. We wanted to have a hit with mum and a kick of the footy with dad. Yeah. And, and I played junior tennis with my brother and I can remember playing junior tennis in the Northeastern Junior Tennis Association. And I was the second youngest in the team and my brother, who was two years younger than me, he was the youngest, obviously. But he was, the, he was playing position number one. I was playing position number four. So that was, that was no good for the morale. But <laughs> the thing that I, I love about it now even more so than I did then, I kind of just came into it because it was part of the family. It's what we did. And we had a hit on a Sunday with other families and so on. We played, you know, mixed doubles, parents versus kids, all that sort of stuff. What I love about it now is it's a distraction from cycling. So I, I'm going to have a hit, actually, after I finish talking to you guys with, with one of the guys that I play with regularly on Saturday afternoon pennant. Once you're on the court, you don't have your mobile phone on you, so you and I make sure the Bluetooth isn't on my phone, so I'm not seeing any messages that I'm getting. I'm not checking emails. And you're not thinking about that phone call that you need to return or that email. All I'm worried about is getting that damn ball back across the other side of the yeah. net. And that's a, it's, you're, in, you're living in that moment. And I, I, love the cha- I love the challenge of it. I love that one-on-one battle of tennis. Um, and it's, it's just totally different to cycling which is one of the elements that I, that I love of it. And it's a sport that you have for life. So my dad's now 82 years of age. Sadly, mum passed away 16 years ago. But dad's 82 years of age. He plays two or three days a week. Yeah. And I've seen my dad on the court with my daughter. So we've had three generations on the court. And I can't think of many other sports where you can do that. 
Yeah, no, I love that, Matt. It's just such a, an inclusive sport, and yeah, I guess as well. Yeah, just just from my perspective as well, hearing the the the, the letters NAGTA just oh, brings back so many memories. Like I, I, I played juniors until I aged out, I think, and um, yeah, now now playing uh, Tuesday night men's, which is uh, unfortunately I haven't played I think for about five months since um when you play this began. So um, hopefully we'll get a season next uh, in uh, well next month, I think, because um, uh, spring season is about to about to begin but some um, when it comes to oh, i guess the pros or even locally if if you want have you got a, a memory a match that that stands out for you above all the others uh, as a kid uh, mum and dad used to you know we have to go to bed at 8 30 but the pat cash versus Ivan lendl final in wimbledon in 1987 i was 12 years old we were allowed to stay up until 1 a.m to watch that final so i remember that vividly i remember going to the australian open when it was a kuyong as a kid and going day one to not to Melbourne Park to Flinders Park. It was known as Flinders yes. Park in 1988 when it opened. Awesome. So we went there as part of the McLeod Tennis Club. We all went along to go on that first day. That was absolutely fantastic. One of the things I love going to now, even more so than actually going to the Australian Open and seeing Djokovic or Nadal on centre court at Rod Laver Arena, I love going to the December showdown because yeah. you're seeing world-class tennis and you're right there on the fence, and there's people playing for their livelihoods. It is sensational. And recently with the Victorian Premier League, with the panic that's been happening with the Victorian Premier League, we've seen Mark Pullman's play against Alex Bolt at Bandura Tennis Club, like a local tennis club on the classic old Auntie car, yeah. and you've got two guys <laughs> who play Grand Slams playing against each other on a court that I play at on a Tuesday night. It's sensational. <laughs> It, it absolutely is, and, that, and that's the beauty of it. I think, um, and you mentioned the December showdown. It's free to get in as well. So you go, you go, you just go watch. You sit right in the front row, and you're watching, as you said, world class tennis. It doesn't get, doesn't get much better than that. And and looking, looking at Grand Slams now. What what's one match that sticks out for you in recent memory that you thought, geez, I, I will never forget this for the rest of my life. A team versus Nadal at Roland Garros. Yeah, I just. I just love the grind of the clay. I think that's because I've grown up on Anticar, playing locally in Melbourne. But a, a tournament that really inspired me when I was racing as a cyclist, I was living in France in 1997, and Pat Rafter, I think he made it through to the semi-final at Roland Garros in 97, and he just he kept he was still serving volleying on the clay. Quirton was you know ended up winning the tournament that year. But I was really inspired by, by that, being able to watch that because it reminded me of home and tennis was the family sport. And I was like, okay, this is the attitude that Rafter is taking into this tennis match. I'm the odd one out as the Aussie on this French team. And, you know, my French wasn't very good at that point. Nobody else speaks English. But I'm going to serve and volley in every opportunity I get. I'm going to go on the front foot. I'm going to get in a breakaway. I'm going to try and win some bike races. And I remember racing and thinking of the way Pat Rafter was approaching the way he was playing those matches at Roland Garros in 97. So I was really inspired by his attitude as much as anything else. And it was, you know, I will be beaten, but I'm not going to lose. You've got to beat me, but I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to hand this to you on a platter. And I, I loved that. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. And Rafter was that player. He carried the hopes of a nation mm. so many times. And, um, you know, the French Open is an often a place that Australians do succeed. I think his run to the semis would be on the men's side anyway, the, the, long, the deepest an Australian has gone since 
probably the Rod Laver days. So it's been it's been a very very long time between drinks. But um, just one quick one: the, the difference between covering and I've, I've seen you've been at the Australian Open a few times covering tennis and cycling. There must be some some unbelievably difficult differences that you have to overcome. What, what what's the main thing that that you found in terms of following the two different sports? Um, with tennis, you can, there's so many different matches happening, and you win or you lose. Yeah. And with cycling, it's everybody's in the race together. It looks like an individual sport, but it's a team sport. So. For example, when Kid Elevens won the Tour de France, there was nine guys on that team and eight of them, their actual finishing position did not matter. So eight guys completely sacrificed themselves for one guy to be able to win and that was Kid Elevens. So telling the story of the performance of Marcus Burkhardt in that race, his individual result is totally irrelevant. To say that he finished in X position in the overall standings, does not tell the story of how he performed in the race. So you don't just look at the result sheet in cycling to tell the story of how somebody performed. Mark Renshaw, for example, one of the famous Australian cyclists, he's never won a stage of the Tour de France, but he's contributed a lot to Mark Cavendish winning 30 of them. So he's always been that key lead-out man. He swings off with 150 metres to go or thereabouts, and Cavendish finishes the job off. In, in tennis... It's, it's a win or lose scenario. You know, it's if you either win the match or you lose the match and how deep do you go in the tournament? Um, so it's, it's completely different in that scenario. And there can be a match that's, there's matches that are played under completely different circumstances. If there's a match that starts at 11 o'clock in the morning versus a match that starts at the Australian Open, it can be 11 o'clock at night, but it's, you know, it's on the same day and it's in the same round. It can be a completely different scenario. But in cycling, you start at the same time, you finish at roughly the same time, so it's all under the same conditions. The other big difference between the two is the way the sports are structured. The tennis players are independent operators. They've got to fund themselves, find their sponsorship, get their prize money and so on. A cyclist at least gets a wage. And it's been really fascinating for me to watch the struggle for a tennis player that is 150 in the world. If you're number 150 in the world in cycling, you're going to get paid a good wage from your team. And then if you support somebody win the Tour de France, everybody divides that prize money evenly. When Cadell won the Tour, he didn't keep any of the prize money. He divided that amongst his teammates. In tennis, if you're 150 in the world, you're probably struggling to break even yeah. by the time you pay for coaching, physio and all those things. If you're number 150 in the world in AFL football, you're making a pretty good living yeah. in what is a relatively small market. So tennis is one of the most difficult sports in the world to actually make a living out of. Um, another one that I always look at, I think, man, it's got to be hard to make a living out of that, is imagine trying to make a living as a 100-metre runner. Yeah. I reckon there'd be, there'd be eight people in the world that make a good living out of being an 800-metre yeah. runner. And it's got zero barriers to entry, but anybody can do it and you're competing against the whole world. Yeah. And like you can be the 10th fastest person in the world and not make all that much of a living out of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, you wouldn't even make an Olympic final. So it's uh, like there's only eight that yeah. run there. So it's absolutely crazy. And yeah, you're right. Like there's over, I think there's what, about 180 riders or so in the Tour de France, maybe more every year. Yeah. So, you know, that's, they're all making a decent wage right there with that, with that race. So um, no, it's, sure. it's very difficult as a tennis player, but Matt, seriously, thank you so much for joining us, chatting about your love for tennis, your love for cycling. It's an absolute pleasure to have someone as esteemed as yourself on the show. Your voice is 
heard synonymously around the whole world watching the Tour de France on SBS coverage, and it doesn't get much better than the cold winter nights in Melbourne watching uh, watching you in the summer of France uh, talk about the Tour with Robbie McHugh and Phil Liggett um, and Paul Sherwin in the past. It's been unbelievable, and thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Val. I just I forgot one more that I might add to it. The big difference covering the Tour, yep. you've got to learn about churches and chateaus. <laughs> and don't forget the trees. That is indeed very good. Uh, thanks, thanks so much. For that, I've Matt. enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. No worries. Matt Keenan there joining us from SBS Cycling Central. Their coverage of cycling is some of the absolute best in the world that you're ever going to see. But also they do their tennis coverage as well. They've got the rights, all the free-to-air rights in Australia for the French and US Opens, which is great because the French was previously never really before seen on uh, on free-to-air and the US Open used to be on nine back in the day, but um, like back to the back end of the tournament. So um, no, it's awesome that they've got the rights and they do such a wonderful job with their sports coverage. It's probably some of the most uh, sort of niche sport coverage that you'll see. It's just all about the sport. It's the quality. It's the culture of the country that the sport's in. Um, they don't do that. Uh, there's not many places that do a, that do a better job than than SBS. So absolutely fantastic to have Matt on the show. And um, it was so interesting to hear the differences between sort of the cycling side of the media and the tennis side, and what he sees as the two differences. So yeah, it was it was a really interesting chat. Yeah, it was. And um, just just on that point, Val. I mean, how interesting was uh, was was Matt's point about uh, cycling teams and what Cadell Evans did um, with his mm. prize money and how. Um, like in, a, in an event like the Tour de France, for example, you see the guy that wins, but you rarely see what the teammates do behind the scenes. And there's like seven or eight guys, whereas yeah. in tennis, it's just yourself. one guy, really. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you've got the background staff, but at the end of the day, it's just one guy at the front. And, um, you know, we've, we've spoken a hell of a lot about selfishness in tennis in the last few months. Um, <laughs> so yeah. in that sense, it was, it was really, I guess, not only eye-opening but it was really refreshing to hear Matt talk about those differences yeah I think so and um no it was really refreshing unfortunately that year Cadell seemed to do everything mostly himself anyway his teammates kept dropping off the mountains so um no but yeah it's when you got a team focused around you and and the super domestiques and the and and the sprinters that you know there's always there's always a team leader that you're trying to work towards, whether that be for the for the green jersey, which is the winner of the sprinters classification, for the king of the mountain jersey, if you know you're out of the general classification contention, or the or the yellow jersey, the red jersey in the Vuelta Espana, the pink jersey um, in the Giro d'Italia. There's always someone work. There's always the team working towards their team leader to help them win that uh, win that race. And um, yeah, that's the beauty of cycling, I guess. You know, the teams are in it. There's a captain, and they're the leaders, and they're they're the ones that do. Um, that uh, there at the end. So awesome, awesome to chat to Matt about all the sort of the strategies of cycling and um, the Dennis Bergkamp stuff was was hilarious because um, that's the last place you'd think that someone would start shaking a car and start screaming his name at a cycling race in France. So um, absolutely brilliant. But um, speaking of France and speaking of brilliant, it's time for uh, time for our Benoit of the week, and this is based on uh, Benoit Pair, our favourite Frenchman, who can be very erratic but very quality at the same time. And we saw that in the Ultimate Tennis Showdown last week with his uh, his fake smash drop shot, which was just purely remarkable. So, um, Joel, who is our Benoit of the week this week? And uh, it's a dual Benoit of the week. Yeah, so it's uh, a bit one. of a shared. It's a bit of a shared Benoit. It's a kind of general. Benoit, um, and the good thing is that it's a positive Benoit. We haven't had one of these in a little while. Um, 
But this week's memoir of the week goes to the tennis oldies and specifically Tommy Haas and Kim Clijsters. Now, the reason behind that is both of those players, um, of course, uh, at the ripe old age of, I think Tommy Haas is 42 and Kim yep. Clijsters is 37, I think, or yep. 38. Um, anyway, so they've both been competing at, at exhibition events, Tommy Haas in Berlin. And how's the setting for that one, by the way, in a, in a hangar <laughs> at an airport, um, just, just casually? Um, I know. But yeah, Tommy Haas um, knocked over young Leonard Struff, yep. who is 12 years younger than him. So um, very impressive by by Tommy Haas. And I tell you what, the guy who looks like he could honestly still play um, has has a very important role these days. He's tournament director at Indian Wells. But if he wanted to still play tennis, I reckon he easily could. Oh yeah. Um, and Kim Clijsters. I mean, this is just this is just staggering. Our world team tennis in the states, I believe it was. Yep. She had wins against, listen to this roll call, Sophia Kennan, Danielle Collins, and Sloane Stephens. Can you believe that? Two slam champions in that. Yeah. And a Grand Slam semi-finalist in Collins. It's incredible. Yeah, unbelievable. So well done to the both of them. That's It's awesome. And well, Kleister's the comeback is still on the cards, and I'm sure she'll get a wild card into the US Open. So absolutely brilliant from her. So yeah, it's uh, it's awesome to see those uh, the oldies coming back and winning these exhibitions. But um, you know, we could have a very, very old US Open champion this year if um, the Haas decides to come out of retirement, but I doubt that's going to happen. But absolutely brilliant work from you, Joel. Thank you very much today. No, thanks, Val. Um, hopefully next week we'll have some more clarity around what's, yes. what's happening because um, I'm pretty over-talking about what might happen. I want to see some some concrete stuff here. I know, me too. I want to get things in writing. But um, you can you can follow Joel on Twitter at Joel Fruch and Instagram as well. And speaking of Twitter and Instagram, we want to hear from you. We want to hear where you're listening. We want to hear why you, you like the podcast. We want to hear your question. Just tweet us in uh, at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter, Instagram Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook Breakpoint Podcast. We want to know where you're listening. We see people from all over the world in our in our stats that are tuning in and, and dialing into the podcast. We'd love to know where you're from and how you found the podcast. And yeah, just shoot us a message and we'll, we'll do our best to answer the questions on the show. So um, follow us and subscribe on uh, Wooshka, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. We're there. All of our shows are there. Um, and social media, as I just said, we'd love to hear from you. And our email, breakpointpod at gmail.com, if you want to shoot us an email as well. I've been Val Febo at vfebo96 on Twitter and Instagram as well. If you want to follow for tennis news or whatever, if you want to see my Richmond paraphernalia on there, um, you know, you might. Um, Joel's got his Essendon stuff as well. But, um, yeah, absolutely fantastic show. Joel, again, thank you very much. No worries, man. We'll catch everyone next week.